This is the Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, the Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Welcome, weekend warriors of Michigan politics and government. We actually had elections around the state this past Tuesday, the first this year. What happened? Well, just under 80% of the more than 140 local tax-raising proposals passed with voters, according to a review of local millage results compiled by Michigan Information and Research Service, MERS, as it's known in Lansing. The percentage of approved local taxes was lower than some other past elections, but it should be noted that eight of the 23 failed proposals were tied to a series of proposals in various school districts asking if they'd like to be annexed into the mid-Michigan college territory, as it's called. Among the larger proposals to fail Tuesday included a $44 million bonding request by Battle Creek Public Schools, a $30 million request from Ithaca Public Schools, and a $23 million bonding attempt by Reese Puffer Schools in Muskegon County. Eight total schools-related questions failed Tuesday, as did two roads proposals, one police proposal, one parks proposal, two general operations proposals, and one request to build a new justice complex in Otsego County. But the big bonding proposals for Kentwood Public Schools, $192 million, Livonia Public Schools, $186 million, Holt Public Schools, $148 million, Woodhaven-Brownstown School District, $144 million, and Waverly Community Schools, next to Lansing, $125 million. They all passed with voters. Now, what about the ongoing battle against the coronavirus? Well, some good news. Masks will no longer be needed outdoors unless a gathering exceeds 100 people under the latest update to the state's COVID-19 epidemic orders. The new Michigan Department of Health and Human Services order also allows anyone fully vaccinated and not experiencing symptoms to go maskless at residential gatherings, including indoor ones. The order went into effect Thursday and it runs through the end of the month. The new order also provides residential outdoor gatherings to go to 50 people. The total cases for the pandemic in Michigan so far, beginning in March of last year, up until the present time, are now at just over 853,000. The death total is just over 18,000 in Michigan. Now, what about the vaunted ethics reform package of bills being considered in the state capitol? Well, a special legislative committee would be charged with sniffing out conflict of interest concerns among lawmakers and collecting legislative personal financial disclosure statements under legislation that received its first state house committee hearing this week. 
Representative Andrew Fink, a Republican of Hillsdale who's been on this program a couple of times, said his bill, called House Bill 4860, would allow a new ethics board to receive and review complaints. It would then suggest whatever discipline it feels is necessary. Fink said, and I'm quoting here, the people we represent deserve to know that their representatives are acting according to the interests of the people of the state rather than the narrow interests or financial interests of the representatives themselves. And the committee established by my bill, this is Fink's bill, and implemented by the follow-up bills would allow that to happen, unquote. Attempts to adopt financial disclosure for lawmakers have been made in past sessions, I can tell you, back half a century ago. But Fink said he believes this version will address the concerns of those who have opposed such proposals or been skeptical of the plan in the past. We'll hear more about this in the next few minutes from our guests. Also, what about that golden parachute? Governor Whitmer's Director of Health and Human Services, Robert Gordon, got early this year when he resigned. Was it unique? Well, no. It turns out the Michigan Economic Development Corporation, MEDC, all by itself, independent of any other golden parachutes anywhere else in state government, including the legislature, the MEDC has shelled out nearly half a million dollars in severance compensation to outgoing employees and deals going back to 2013. But none of the nearly half million dollars paid out to those employees was taxpayer-funded money appropriated by the legislature. But when accrued vacation time is added to the mix, the total amount paid out to 22 former MEDC employees comes to $507,503 since 2013. Severance agreements are available to MEDC employees only when they are paid out of the corporate side of the agent's budget, the agency's budget. Corporate side means the private sector, which is funded by the state's gaming agreements with the various Native American tribes, according to an MEDC spokesman. But that spokesman said that, quote, the ultimate takeaway on this is that we are in fact a corporation, unquote, and that the practice of paying out severance to former employees is, quote, not uncommon in the traditional corporate world, unquote. Now, here is a question I've been asked this week, and here is my answer. The question is, Will Donald Trump play a role in Michigan's 2022 gubernatorial race? And if so, what will that role likely be? And my answer is almost certainly he will. But the question is, will it be more significant in the Republican primary or in the general election? The former president weighed in on the special election in Texas's 6th congressional district over last weekend, and the primary candidate he endorsed, Susan Wright, 
finished first in a 23-candidate field, although she faces a runoff. It was a so-called jungle primary in which all the candidates, Republican and Democrat, run together in a jumble, 23 of them, and Democrats were completely locked out of the finale. The Republican aggregate vote overpowered the Democrats 62 to 37 percent in a district that Trump carried but by only 3 percent last year. I expect Trump will endorse both in Michigan's GOP gubernatorial primary next year and in the general where he could be expected to come in and deliver a stem winder against his old bet noir, as the French would say, quote, the woman from Michigan, unquote. Here's another question. Are potential top-notch contenders for a Michigan GOP gubernatorial bid stuck in a holding pattern until John James decides whether he's running or not? And if so, realistically, how long can they wait? My answer is it depends on what you define as top-notch. Potentially strong candidates like Candace Miller and Ronna McDaniel have already opted out well before any decision John James might make. Others not considered top tier have already announced. Rick Snyder was not necessarily considered top notch in 2010. He eventually ran. I think that if someone who has a lot of money is deemed top-notch, I've found their financial advantage often propels them to run no matter what someone like James might eventually decide. That's it for this segment, but stay tuned. We got some great guests coming up. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. As promised, we have returned, and we are really fortunate to have with us again Representative David Legrand. He was on this program just over two months ago. He is a Democrat from Grand Rapids, state representative of the 75th House District, and he is also the ranking Democrat on the House Judiciary Committee. He's the minority vice chairman. And he's also on the Oversight Committee in the House, two very powerful committees. Welcome to the Political Insider again, Representative David Legrand. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Always always a pleasure. Well, you know, when we talked a couple of months ago, um, the legislature, important people in it, had just uh, taken note of the fact that Michigan remains one of only two states that don't require state lawmakers to disclose their financial interests. And that's a lack of transparency that makes it difficult to know if legislators are supporting bills that personally benefit them. So it was significant when these legislative leaders touted their so-called bipartisan ethics reform measures that they insisted will hold members to account. But there was just one hitch. And that is that the financial information lawmakers would be required to submit is not available to the public. Instead, according to the bill, as I understand it, and I want Representative Legrand to comment on this, it would be handed over to a secretive legislative committee 
secretive because the information would be exempt from the state's Open Meetings Act and Freedom of Information Act, which makes government information open to the public. The public would only learn of a current lawmaker's financial holdings if the committee determines a member has violated ethical conflict of interest standards. Members' financial records otherwise can only be disclosed to the public upon request after they leave office under the legislation. So I want to ask you, uh, Representative Legrand, uh, what is going on with all this stuff right now, uh, two months after you were on this program and looking ahead? Where is this package, and is what I just described accurate? It is, Bill. And, you know, I, there's there's a show on Netflix that was really popular called Stranger Things. And in Stranger <laughs> Things, there's a parallel dark world filled with monsters, which is underneath our world. And it looks a lot like our world, but it's filled with monsters. I feel like this is sort of the Stranger Things version of financial disclosure. Um, I, my, we, a uh, group of us, introduced real financial disclosure uh, earlier this session, and we got 63 co-sponsors in the House. So a clear majority of representatives, this is the good news, a clear majority of representatives were willing to sign their name to the proposition that we should be accountable to the people. Um, and I'm a power to the people kind of guy. Um, I think that media and, and disclosure uh, to the people are really an important part of a healthy democracy. Um, and I think we are at a sort of a, an identity crisis as a country right now. Look, 40 percent of the country doesn't even think that their ballots got honestly counted. We are at a massively uh, distrustful time in our republic. And the only thing I can think of to do to help is to model openness and transparency to the voters. You can't do secret disclosure. The English language doesn't work that way. Um, and you can, you know, issue a press release and say, hey, we're doing disclosure. This is wonderful. Uh, and hope people don't notice that it's secret disclosure. But th- then you got a fool me once problem. I mean, I don't think the voters are that dumb. I think if you issue a press release and say you did one thing when you actually did the Stranger Things version of it, maybe you'll fool people now. Maybe you'll fool them in a month. But they're not going to stay fooled. And when you're done with that, uh, you're going to have voters who trust us less, not voters who trust us more. And representative democracy only works if you are confident that you are being represented and not conned. Yeah. uh, Well, one bill, I think, in this big package of so-called ethics reforms did get out of the House this week, if I'm not mistaken, and that involved conflict of interest. In other words, if a legislator has a conflict of interest between his or her own financial holdings and a particular bill that comes up for a vote that might have an impact on those holdings, positively or negatively, uh, that legislator has to recuse himself or herself. And I think that passed overwhelmingly. I mean, was that a good bill? What do you think? Absolutely. And so credit where credit's due. I think that uh, Speaker Wentworth and uh, Representative Hornberger, whose bill that was, did a really good thing there. And there's a push, there's a package, an ethics and uh, reform package. And of that package, at least 10 of the ideas in there are really good. In fact, one of them was something I've introduced a few sessions in a row, which is a bill to stop legislators immediately becoming lobbyists. I've introduced that bill in a number of sessions. And finally, it's going to get uh, it's going to get some traction. Now, it's going to have it's going to come up uh, with somebody else's name on it, but I don't care. Um, Good policy is good policy. 
Uh, so, you know, I really want to give credit to Speaker Wentworth for leading the charge on that. And, yeah, uh, making sure that people don't vote in their own self-interest is really important. As a matter of fact, we were in session yesterday, and I recused myself on four sequential votes because I had a conflict. Uh, and what, was, what this bill will do is make what's now just a House rule into actual law. And I really think that that will lead to a, a, a better culture of accountability and, and due care in Lansing. Well, I mean, it still doesn't get us into it still doesn't get us into disclosure. And that's really where we need to go. if We want to restore voter trust. But yeah, it's a, it's a good step. Well, I mean, looking at disclosure, I mean, the point is, if you don't have honest, open disclosure that is immediately apparent to the public in the news media, if it uh, is financial information given by members to this so-called secret committee, how can anybody make a judgment as to whether a legislator is doing the right thing in recusing himself or herself or not recusing himself or herself if they don't know the basis on which that decision is being made? Exactly. I mean, this is, this is politicians policing themselves. And if we've got a problem with voter trust, to say to the voters, trust me, is not the reason. Is not a solution. Uh, <laughs> we have to give them a basis for trusting us, not just keep saying "trust me" over and over and over again. The problem is inside Lansing bubble. I know that my colleagues are as honorable, honest, hardworking people, but the fact that I trust them doesn't matter. That's inside the Lansing bubble. What we've got to do is restore voter trust. We've got to get information out to the people. Well, you you talk about your. Uh, lobbyist revolving door bill that would stop legislators from instantly becoming lobbyists when they exit the legislature after term limits or for whatever reason. Um, is that, you think, in pretty good shape right now in terms of being able to pass the House the way you introduced it, or is that being yeah. mucked up as well in, in a no, way? No, that's not. Nah. That's not being mucked up. They just took my bill and reintroduced it, and uh, and you know another another uh, lawmaker got the bill, and that's you know that's just how things go, and I don't care. So that's it's great, and I will do everything I can to advocate for that getting passed. I think that's a that's an important reform. So we've got uh, the conflict of interest bill out of the house. We've got yours on track, hopefully to pass. Uh, you know, we could go through this whole list. I want to come back and talk a little bit more about this and ask Representative David LeGrand a couple of other questions. Stick with us. We've got Representative David LeGrand. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We have returned with Representative David LeGrand, representing the 75th House District, a Democrat of Grand Rapids, a key member for the Democrats of two powerful House committees, Judiciary and Oversight. We've been talking about ethics reform. Uh, he indicated in the first segment that uh, one bill that's a good bill uh, involving legislators recusing themselves from legislation involving conflict of interest has already cleared the House, and he is fairly confident uh, that there's something going to be done about the so-called lobbyist 
revolving door. I just want to ask Representative LeGrand, what other bills in the package um, are likely to pass the House, at least, in a form that you approve of, not that have been uh, amended, so to speak, or screwed up or obscured? Yeah. So there are a couple other really good ideas in the package. And, you know, it's a 14-bill package, and sometimes bills just do technical things. So we don't get it bogged down in technicalities. But the two other really good ideas are putting some teeth in things like there are limits on gifts that a legislator can take, like there are reporting things. So like if a lobbyist takes me out to lunch and spends more than 35 bucks, they've got to report it. Well, it's also true that I just flat out can't take a gift like a you know trip to Alaska worth more than a certain amount. So the question is, what are the teeth for how do you enforce that limit and how do you have penalties? And so there's some bills that deal with that. The one that I think is really important, uh, the, the other one that I think is really important in the package is if a lobbyist takes me out to lunch, there's a paper trail. If a lobbyist takes my staff out to lunch right now, there's no paper trail. So it makes my staff lobbyable people who you have to track, too. And that makes a lot of sense, right? Because right. a backdoor way to influence a legislator could be to just buy his lobbyist a bunch of, a bunch of uh, lobster dinners. I mean, buy his staffer a bunch of lobster dinners. So tracking lobbyist contact with staff makes a lot of sense, and it's just good government. Now, that said, it's all kind of inside baseball stuff, right? So those are good processes for inside Lansing. But they don't help us with a, with a culture of transparency back out to the people uh, in the way that financial disclosure, real financial disclosure would. So they're good, but I don't think they're transformative, if that makes sense. Yeah, let me ask one other question on ethics reform, and that is, is there a chance that the House might strip away this secret four-member committee that's going to hear uh, financial information or receive financial information from members and allow it, you know, full, uh, open, let the sun shine in disclosure under the Freedom of Information Act to the media and the public. Is there a chance that could still happen in the House? And if it doesn't, is it all because of fear that somehow it's not going to go anywhere in the Senate and you want to make it easier for the Senate to accept? Well, uh, yeah. I mean, the, the problem is that the Senate will accept a Stranger Things version. Uh, that's a step backwards, as I said, not a not a step forward. Um, I, I, I went to the Ethics Committee and asked them to amend these bills last week so that they would do real financial disclosure and not contradiction in terms, not Stranger Things disclosure. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I hope that an amendment will be offered this week, uh, and I can't predict how that'll go. But I am certainly going to try. And, you know, the Secretary of State has made it very clear uh, where she is on this issue. Um, I am hopeful that our Attorney General will weigh in shortly. Uh, the governor has, of course, disclosed her own finances. And so she's led the way on real financial disclosure. So I'm hoping uh, that folks will, you know, take note of what's happening at the, at the you know, statewide elected office level. Um, Secretary of State Benson disclosed her finances a long time ago. She's been a leader on this for a long time, and so has the governor. Uh, and, uh, you know, knowing what I know about uh, Attorney General Nessel, who I think is a great person and really into good government, um, you know, I expect her to be on the right side of this, too. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping that we're building a movement. And frankly, you know, getting the word out and having you talk about this is really important, too. I mean, the media has got a really important role to play here. 
and letting the voters know what's really going on. Okay, let me ask you about some other things going on this week. Vaccination passports, an attempt to ban (laughs) them. And I see you at one point described this as uh, Bigfoot, a vaccination passport. But on the other hand, you said, now wait a second here, nobody's talking about doing this vaccination passport in the state. Why are we trying to stop something uh, before it even becomes an issue? What do you think about that? Right. And, and Bill, what the point I made in committee is, is, I think, a really important one, which is I think all of us who care about liberty and freedom should be, should be concerned about government overreach and government that's too big. Well, if the government suddenly thinks that it's its job to examine all hypothetical possibilities for the future of the world and start legislating them, government's going to have to be a lot bigger. I mean, we could legislate against, uh, you know, Elon Musk uh, doing chip implants in our brain if we wanted, but he hasn't invented them yet. Um, we could legislate against putting, as I said in committee, we could legislate against moving the capital to the bottom of Lake Michigan. Like, I don't want to scuba dive to work, um, but I don't know that anybody's proposing it. So so I think, and again, and I said in committee, there's a, I'm a lawyer, and one of the concepts you get in, in uh, legal cases often, as you say, this issue isn't ripe for consideration. So the court will say, look, don't don't take up our time on on a hypothetical. Um, we, we don't look at hypotheticals. We look at real real issues. And I think that properly every branch of government should look not at hypotheticals, but at real issues, because otherwise we go down. We can go down an infinite number of side roads. And there are enough real things in Michigan that really need to be dealt with right now. We I mean, we've really got to wrap our arms around how we bounce back out of COVID, uh, how the economy bounces back out of COVID, um, how we, you know, how we move forward as a, as a community and how we, you know, support each other and, you know, how we deal with infrastructure issues and justice issues. And like, boy, I've got, you know, I feel like my job is drinking out of a fire hose. There are so many issues that are important (laughs) to my voters that I just don't, I'm not all that excited about taking up legislation about hypothetical. Well, okay, you say hypothetical, but uh, honestly, uh, vaccination passports are here. They're not here in Michigan, but they are, for instance, in New York. I heard on the radio yesterday, Broadway is opening in July. Shows are going to be put on for the first time in over a year. But to go to a show on Broadway in New York, you got to have a vaccination passport. And you had somebody well, testify at your committee yesterday, I think, saying uh, this is going on in New York and it's coming to Michigan. If Andrew Cuomo uh, is doing it, you can be sure Gretchen Whitmer will pretty soon try to do it. too. OK, well, again, this comes back. This is the Bigfoot problem and it's a hypothetical problem. Like so you're telling me you saw a Bigfoot in New York. That's great. But until you until you show me Bigfoot in Michigan, um, we're going to have a hard time discussing what we're talking about, because. Uh, the testimony we had in our committee was about the possibility that the government might issue something that stopped you traveling from state to state, and it was all about the government stopping people doing things. Well, in New York, we're talking about Broadway shows. Last I heard, Andrew Cuomo doesn't own the Broadway operations in New York. Private entities are requiring proof of vaccination. That's another discussion. So, you know, you, you get these, you know, you, it just quickly gets whipped up into, into a lot of hypotheticals and a lot of overheated rhetoric unless you've got an actual proposal in front of you to talk about. It. And that's my point. I mean, the, the testimony in, in committee this week was all about, you know, boy, if you, if you let people record whether they got vaccinated or not on, on the piece of paper that they're handing out at Meyer, pretty soon we're going to be like in Nazi Germany. Well, 
that's overheated rhetoric, right? Yeah. Uh, from my perspective, and you know, I I went to Meyer and I got my vaccine vaccine, and and they gave me a piece of paper that said I got vaccinated. We can't be talking about stopping that from happening. That doesn't make any sense. Okay. But, but then we're talking about hypotheticals, and given that nobody's proposing anything that's called a vaccine passport in Michigan. How much time do I want to spend on this right now? It's not ripe for consideration. That's my point. I don't like big government. Let me ask you about another issue. Golden parachutes, uh, uh, but we don't have time. (laughs) We're running out. I mean, MEDC has given out a lot since 2013. Republicans are trying to make a big deal out of Governor Whitmer and the arrangement she had with her health and human services director in January. But... Uh, the legislature has been guilty of golden parachutes. Is that a, something that should be looked at? Well, as a matter of fact, it's something we fixed, and that's something where the conversation led to better government. So the governor now has issued an executive order saying that that's not going to happen in her administration, which means she's leading on you know, a clean government issue, which is great. And we passed out of the House last week. Uh, a policy saying this wouldn't happen in the legislature or the executive going okay. forward. We're going to have to we're going to have to leave it there. We're out of time, but I want to thank David Legrand. Thank you so much for being our guest. Thanks always. Thank As you. always, Bill. Thank you. Pleasure. Bye bye. This is MTN, and you're listening to the Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. We are back, and we have on the line with us Ted Roloffs, who is correspondent with Bridge Michigan Magazine online. Uh, Ted Roloffs, thanks for being our guest. Yeah, good to be with you. Ted, you've been around a long time, and uh, I think you've seen a lot of legislation introduced on this issue. We talked about with Representative David Legrand in the previous two segments of the program, and that is Michigan remains one of only two states that do not require state lawmakers to disclose their financial interests, and that's a lack of transparency that makes it difficult to know if legislators are supporting bills that personally benefit them. So there was an attempt, and there is an attempt ongoing right now by state legislative leaders, at least in the House of Representatives in Lansing, to enact bipartisan ethics reforms that they insist will hold members to account. But there's a hitch, as I understand it. Maybe you can explain this a little bit. Uh, The financial information lawmakers would be required to submit is not available to the public. Instead, according to the bill, it would be handed over to a secretive legislative committee. Secretive because the information would be exempt from the state's Open Meetings Act and Freedom of Information Act, which makes government information open to the public. So what do you think about all this? Well, I think um, for starters, if you're interested in true public disclosure, then you literally should do that. Um, The way this bill is constructed Uh, Members of the House and Senate report this financial information not to be publicly available, but to a committee, a four-person committee uh, appointed by majority uh, leader and minority leaders in each chamber. Um, And one interesting sidebar with this is that the majority leader can remove a member for any reason. And I guess the thinking here, if you want to give it its very best construction, is that we can trust the members of this committee whose dealings we know nothing about and are not disclosed to the public to do the right thing by uh, putting sunlight on any sort of financial um, discrepancies that are worth knowing. 
but you know ultimately that rests on our trusting a committee whose dealings are, are done in secret. So it begs the question, if you're truly interested in financial disclosure, make it available to the public as 48 other states do, as the federal government has done which much, with much more um, rigorous disclosure standards way back to the 19, I think 1978 is, is how long the federal government has done that for Congress and the Senate. So again, um, this is not asking a whole lot of members. It's basic uh, financial disclosure information. We're not going to know down to the penny what their net worth is. We are going to know what their financial interests are. And that's logical when you think of the massive bills that roll through the House and Senate every single session. Some of those in some ways might affect um, the personal finances of, of members of the House and Senate. That's logically information the public should know. Yeah. Let me let me ask you about something you said here, a clarification. You say this four-member committee, the majority leader of the House and Senate, two of the four members on this committee, could remove any member. You mean of the four-member committee? I mean, in other words, if they didn't like what the minority leader stood for or was deciding on a certain issue, they could just kick him or her off the committee and name somebody else uh, in this case, it would be a Democrat from the House or Senate to take their place. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, it allows the, the committee is appointed by the majority member and minority members of each chamber. However, the House Speaker or majority leader can remove a member of that four person committee for any reason. Huh. And then you go back to the appointment process again. Yeah. But it's just it's an, it's just another. Well, um, OK, I, I understand. And I, I to me, it sounds wacky. I mean, and unfair, obviously. I mean, there's no way that two of the people of this four member committee should have that kind of power, in my opinion. Let me let me just ask you one thing, just to kind of brainstorm here with you for a minute. You talk sure. about Congress um, mandating this financial disclosure since, let's say, 1978. And as you say, it's kind of broad categories, like they hold up to X number of dollars in a particular field mm -hmm. or whatever. They don't have to disclose exactly, as you say, down to the penny uh, what their financial information is. And I got to tell you, um, I was in the Senate half a century ago, and I introduced all these bills that are being debated right now. I introduced all of them. And you know what? Uh, concomitantly with that, I actually released my income tax returns voluntarily. I said, hey, I don't care. I, I don't care. Let everybody uh, look at it. I'll let the sun shine in. And, sure. you know, this is supposedly something that terrifies uh, legislators and Congress people. They think, oh, my God, I'm not going to open myself up. Well, guess what? I did it. I didn't get one question from anybody about anything. Nothing. Sure. And I got to yeah, believe it's, it's, I got to believe that when you get right down to it, what really bothers the public and the voters is secrecy. And we don't sure. know what they're doing. Yep. Uh, but if you tell us what you're doing, frankly, we're going to look at it and our eyes are probably going to glaze over. <laughs> we're going to say, yeah. who cares about all this stuff anyway? Yeah, let me let me read you a comment that I just bookmarked. Um, this was, I don't know, a few weeks ago with the majority leader Shirky uh, doing an interview with the editorial board of the Detroit News yeah. talking about this issue. Because I think ultimately it looks like this, measure in the House uh, was crafted in a way that perhaps the majority leader in the Senate might go along with, thus perhaps become law. 
So he made a comment to the Detroit News talking about this, uh, saying that he's been a little reluctant to embrace financial disclosures. And so that's been crafted in a way we can live with because I didn't want to get into your hands. That would be the media while people are serving and just give people a hard time over what their personal financial statements are. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty nakedly about what what's going on here. There's a mistrust of giving this information out to the public and letting the media look at it because, my God, there might be some publicity that members of the House <laughs> or Senate don't like. And, you know, curiously, they... They crafted this measure. I guess this this is their answer to these questions. We're going to make this uh, financial information of members available, get this, after they leave office. Isn't that helpful? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, look. There's a fundamental mistrust of of, uh, what I think is a foundational principle of a functioning democracy, which is uh, disclosure, openness, and, you know, a full and fair press. I think most people would agree with that. Yeah, look, uh, you and I are both members of the media, and frankly, I got to tell you, Ted, uh, there are a lot of people in public office who do mistrust the media and uh, individual members in the media. Some they obviously trust more than others. I mean, the media is not a monolith. Everybody isn't the same, but that isn't or shouldn't be, it seems to me, an excuse to say, well, we can never let this information out, even though 48 other states do it, uh, because the media might misread this or misinterpret it or deliberately go after somebody and embarrass them with stuff like that, right? Yeah, and oddly enough, why is it we have 48 other states that have been doing this for a long time, and you don't really hear a lot about all the horrible abuse of public officials that's resulted from from these measures? It's it's not there, but yet there's Michigan stands as an outlier. Well, let me ask you also about uh, we have a bicameral legislature meaning a House and a Senate. And I think everybody knows, uh, at least who follows government, that when a bill or a series of bills passes one house in whatever form and it goes over to the other chamber, it could go from the Senate to the House or the House to the Senate, the other chamber then fly specs it, votes on it. And if it's different than the version that came over from the other chamber, then there is a so-called conference committee to iron out differences. And if they can agree on something, it will eventually go to the governor for his or her signature. That's the way business is done. That's the law. That's the Constitution, Right. Right. Well, okay, sure. why, why, Ted Roloss, why can't the House just say, we don't really care right now what Senate Majority Leader Mike Shirky thinks. We're just going to pass legislation in the form we think it should be passed in. And yeah. we'll send it over to the Senate. And if they don't like it and they want to change it, let's see what they do with it. And then whatever differences we have with the Senate, we can iron out. Uh, do you think, I mean, why can't they do that? Or do you think if if they pass a bill uh, that is so pure, it's going to scare Shirky and he's got an excuse to never take it up? We're yeah, running out of time, the, but go ahead. Yeah, maybe the thinking here was that um, we're going we're gonna to put this whole package together and maybe people really won't look that closely at this uh, personal financial disclosure aspect of this. Oh, we've got a committee that's going to do this. Hey, that sounds great. 
let's roll it through the through the house and looks like the Senate's can go for it too. I don't know, maybe that was the thinking. Who knows? Yeah, okay, listen, we could talk about this more and we will sometime in the future, I hope, with Ted Roloff, because he's following this. Thank you, Ted Roloff, the Bridge Michigan magazine for being our guest. Oh, you bet. We'll be back next week with more.